just like to welcome everyone to the LSE. Uh, my name's Ian Spencer, I'm Director of Residential Services here at the LSE. But you're not here to listen to me, you're here to listen to Bill Turnbull talk about how not to keep bees. So a very warm welcome to Bill, to the LSE and to you, the audience. The talk is actually part of a series, Sustainability in Practice. Uh, the next one is on Monday, 9th of May, for those that you are, are interested in following the series. And for Twitter followers, our hashtag is LSEBs. That's outside of my um, understanding, I'm told to say that. In terms of the format of the meeting, um, we expect Bill to talk for about 30 minutes or so, and then there'll be a question and answer session, which we hope will be informal, and again, we think that will last for about 30 minutes. That's roughly the format of the meeting. Um, so without further ado, I'll welcome Bill Turnbull. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Gosh, this is posh, isn't it? I've never lived in an address at a university before, and I feel a little bit like a lecturer, though. Then when I hear the words sustainability in practice, I think we're just going to have to put that to one side, because I'm not even sure what that means. So it's a great pleasure to be with you. Can I just check, how many of you are actually students at the LSE? Okay. <laughs> That's fine. I'm not either. How, uh, how many, any beekeepers here tonight? Okay. All right, good. That's, uh, that's marvellous. Uh, and as you know, my name's Bill Turnbull. I, uh, some of you may know me from my day job as a presenter on uh, BBC Breakfast, which I'm pleased to say is the nation's number one breakfast television programme. There are only two on terrestrial television, but we're the number one, and that's uh, what's really important. And uh, it's a good, great pleasure to be with you, especially on such an auspicious day. This is a very important day, ladies and gentlemen, and, uh, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you because this is publication day for the paperback edition of this book, What I Wrote. <laughs> and you'll be able to say, I was there the day Bill Turnbull delivered his first sustainability and practice lecture <laughs> about the book, what he wrote, called The Bad Beacons Club. Not only that, ladies and gentlemen, you have the most amazing opportunity this evening. <laughs> to have your very own copy. Polly's sitting out there, ready to sell it to you afterwards for the bargain price of £7.99, and at no extra cost. I will sign it personally for you. Now, you can get it cheaper on Kindle for a fiver, but I can't sign it on Kindle, can I? So I've told her to lock the doors, and uh, I'd be very happy to do that for you later. Um, how not to keep bees, just follow my example. And uh, that's what I've written about, really. I've been keeping bees, or trying to, for about the past 10 years. But my beginnings go back further. It all started with a chicken called Tabasco. Uh, and in fact, we go back even further to a hell's angel called Richard, a retired hell's angel who had once been my next door neighbor when I lived in a small cottage in Buckinghamshire. And he was a really tough guy, hunting, shooting, fishing sort of guy. Uh, used to terrorize the neighbors and ride motorbikes, but was a very good man to have on your side. And he did a bit of building work as well. And when uh, I moved house, he came along and did some work on the house as well. And on a day like this, nice sunny May day, he was outside working, and all of a sudden, he came rushing into the house, <clears throat> really spooked, like a stallion had been startled. And I thought, what has turned this tough guy into such a a woolly bar lamb of a person. What's that? And I looked out the window, and there was a cloud of swarming bees flying around my garden. And I was fascinated. And eventually, they settled on a weeping pear tree at the bottom of the garden into a cluster. And I thought, 
What should I do next? Well, I did what every right-minded citizen does in such circumstances. I called the police. <laughs> and they got in touch with uh, the local beekeepers association and a man came along. I'm not even sure he's wearing protective gear with a cardboard box. And he put the box under the tree, shook the branch of the tree that the bees were on. They came on to, down into the box and a couple of hours later, he simply folded up the cardboard box, carried them away and off he went. And I thought, that's a really cool thing to be able to do. Do I have the zen-like calm, the appreciation of nature, to be able to, to do that, and the courage even, but to be able to manipulate the bees and work with them as one, just making the world a better place? That was 17 years ago, and I'm still looking for the answer to that question. So we move on. And I didn't do anything, but I just had this seed planted in my mind. I'm, I went around the world as a reporter for the BBC, became a foreign correspondent, came back, still didn't keep bees, but started keeping chickens. Anybody here kept chickens? The beekeepers all keep chickens, probably. Anyway, we had three, and we made a terrible mistake. We gave them all names. And you, you chicken keepers, you know, you should never give your hands names, because sooner or later, something's going to go horribly wrong. And, it, you know, they're going to fall ill and shuffle off this mortal coil, and then you'd be very sad to have to ring them to Polly's life or whatever their name is, whereas if they don't have a name, you're not too bothered. Anyway, they were called Agatha, Sally, and Tabasco. And Sally then put on a bit of weight, and she was called Fat Sally. And then when she stopped laying eggs, she became known as Sally Fat something else, but I, you can imagine. So anyway, all was fine until one day Tabasco fell ill, and I had to take her to the vet because she was sort of stumbling around, just didn't look her usual self. So we went to the vet, and I went with my daughter, Flora, who was about 10 at the time, sitting there in the waiting room, Flora at my side, Tabasco on my lap, in a cardboard box. And Flora looked around, she said, Dad, there's a sign. It says, beekeeping lessons. And I thought to myself, my goodness, that's not a sign. That is the sign. This is the moment that I should start on my quest for keeping bees. So I took a note, and we took Tabasco into the vet. And uh, sadly, she didn't make it. He, the vet said she had peritonitis and wasn't going to recover. And for another 15 pounds, he would dispatch her. And I said, I'll save the 15 pounds, and I'll do it myself. But that's another story for the bad hen keepers club when I come to, to write that. Anyway, we went home. And I signed up for lessons for the Pinner and Reisler Beekeepers Association, and I started off with my odyssey as a beekeeper. And it's at moments like this that I, I like to stop and think of Tabasco and thank her for all the places she'd take me. There we go. That's fine. Anyway, I signed up for lessons, and they won't let... If you join a beekeepers association, some of you will know, they don't normally let you near any live bees until you've passed your basic beekeepers test. It's a preliminary thing. They teach you how the beehive works, what the different bits are, how to knock the frames together. The frames are literally little wooden, uh, mostly pine wood frames with wax sheets of foundation, which the, the bees then draw the wax out, chew it out, and make hexagonal cells. And into these, they plant pollen and honey, if you're lucky, and the queen lays her eggs. So you have to understand all that and about swarming and how to protect yourself. And the number one lesson they teach you, certainly when I went, was you will get stung. No two ways about it. Sooner or later, you will get stung. And in my case, of course, it was sooner. I passed my preliminary certificate and they said, right, off you go. You can go and see some bees. And as I went to the, the apiary where two very kind fellows were going to show me how to do it on a Sunday morning. One of them was Christopher Beale, who's still my mentor now, 10 years later. And I turned up a little bit late because I'd been working in the studio. And uh, it was a Sunday. And They'd already opened up the hive, 
And I said, hello, I'm, I'm here, I'm Bill Turnblum, you're going to show me how the, the bees work. He said, yep, that's fine. That van you're standing next to, there's a suit in there, put that on. Oh, and just watch out for the swarm that's clustered on a fence post the other side of the van. And I looked and sure enough, say where Ian is now, there was a swarm of bees. He's here, by the way. Uh, there was a swarm of bees clustered on the post. I thought, that's fine. Reached in, got the suit, wandered, wandered off into the shade up the lane to put the suit on. Now, what I hadn't realized was, in any swarm, there are always, until they've settled themselves, there are a few scouts still flying around, looking to see if there's anywhere better that they can take the queen and a, a nicer home to go to. And two of them decided, because they have an amazing sense of smell, two of them decided that actually my head smelled pretty nice, because I'd had some product on it from being in the studio. And they were buzzing around the back of my head. Also, you have glands here which are emitting scent, and they are very, very sensitive to that as well. So they were doing this. Because it was my first day with live bees, I didn't like this. And eventually, one of them landed on my head. And because my head was still sticky from the product, it got stuck. So all I did was this. So I did what you should never do. Smacked it off. And naturally, as I smacked it off, it stung me on the head. And then the same thing happened with another one, and that stung me on the head too. And uh, Any of you been stung on the head by a bee before? It's like being hit. There you go. Like, and you've got no hair to protect yourself. Uh, it's, it's like being uh, hit on the head with a shovel, isn't it, really? It's just sort of really, really sore. But I thought, I've got to carry on. So then uh, I put the rest of the suit on. I sort of blinked through the pain. And I thought, I'm just going to just muscle on through. And then something else happened. And I'll share this extract with you. Eyes watering, breathing heavily and sweating profusely. I now had to put the suit on. As I was in the middle of a lane, I had to do this standing up, hopping around, and trying to maintain some semblance of dignity and calm, while my inner child blubbed unashamedly and begged to go home. Whatever the pain, though, I had to continue. I'd committed myself to becoming a beekeeper. I couldn't just give up because I'd been stung, even if it had been more than once, and before I'd even got to see any bees. In all honesty, I might have considered it if my beekeeping mentor hadn't been waiting patiently for me a few yards away, unaware of the life and death drama being performed just out of his sight. When they teach you the first principles of apiculture, there's a second very important rule most beekeepers will impress upon you soon after the first one. The first one being, you will get stung. It's this. Make sure that yours is the only body inside the bee suit. Now, it sounds obvious, I know. To be honest, there's not an awful lot of room for anybody else in one. On most occasions, then, you don't have to worry about it. But every so often, a bee is going to try to get in there, and then things can get awkward. Still, it's quite rare, and if you take the right precautions, it should never happen to you. Of course, there's an exception to every rule, and on this particular day, my suit did have an unwelcome visitor, and it wasn't just the guy tripping over his trousers in the car park. I was writhing, wriggling, and beginning to rather reconsider the whole project, but I determined to carry on. Having stepped into the trousers, I pulled the top over my shoulders and reached back for the veil. It comes over the top of the head like a hinged helmet and zips around either side of the neck for a secure, supposedly bee-free fastening. My head was throbbing like an anvil, but I was at last ready to enter the apiary. The two bees that had stung me had disappeared and were now presumably dead. But a third one appeared on my veil. It was quite calm, taking its time, walking around a bit and then stopping right in front of my eyes. I thought it was odd to have a bee for such close company, and then I focused on it more closely and considered the situation. If that bee was on the outside of my veil, I should have been able to see its belly. So why then could I only see its back? 
Like a child being taught its first lesson in arithmetic, I came to the correct conclusion slowly and after some prompting. So why has little Miss B got her back to us? That's right, darling. It's because she's inside the veil. Now, there's being, getting stung on the head, which isn't nice, and there's getting stung on the face, which is a whole lot not nicer. Severe facial blemishes are not a great asset for a television presenter, and at that moment, my whole career did not so much flash before my eyes as simply vanish. I could see the headline, TV newsman hideously disfigured in rampaging bee attack. Sting on tongue rules out radio as well. So I did what so many characters in thrillers do in tense circumstances. I froze. You can do a lot of thinking when you freeze. Uh-oh, there's a bee in my veil. Okay, don't panic. There's just a bee inside the veil. Oh my God, there's a bee in my veil. What am I going to do? Salvation, in the form of Christopher, my bee mentor, was just a few yards away. All I had to do was walk over there very slowly and get his help. If I'd had a stick of nitroglycerin balanced on my head, I could not have stepped more carefully. It was just a few yards, but it felt like one of the longest walks of my life, played out to a disconcertingly loud soundtrack of buzzing. I must have looked rather strange, inching my way forward like an astronaut, taking his first steps on the moon. But at last I made it through the gate and presented myself. Hello, I'm Bill Turnbull, and I'm here to learn about beekeeping from you, and there's a bee inside my veil. Rather like John Wayne, Christopher stepped forward and reached out a gloved hand found the intruder, still perched a centimeter from my nose, and pinched it. I almost expected him to drawl, the hell you say, but of course he didn't, even when I added my pathetic punchline, and I've just been stung on the head, twice. <laughs> so that was my first day with the bees, uh, and I could then have walked away from the whole thing. But I learned a virtue, as I've learned so many other virtues keeping bees, and the virtue that day was fortitude. I thought, I've determined, I've seen the sign, I've determined I'm going to learn about beekeeping. These men have come to show me how the bees work, and I'm going to do it. And so I moved on. Had I known what beekeeping might have, what pain it might have brought me in the following years, I might have reconsidered, because you do get stung quite a lot. And uh, I have been stung on the, uh, on the foot, on the ankle, several times, on the leg, uh, on the finger, on the wrist, uh, on the head, as I mentioned, on the stomach, on the forehead. And uh, this season, actually, in a very new and exceedingly sensitive place, uh, you can imagine, very, very close to disaster, but fortunately not an entire bullseye. And probably the most painful one, actually, was when I uh, got stung uh, on the eyelid, but that's another story. And people say, so, you know, why bother to keep bees if you get stung? And I say, getting stung? That's where the fun is. If you didn't get stung, it'd be too easy. It'd be like keeping flies. And who wants to do that? You have to have that element of risk, <clears throat> that sense of adventure, the idea that you have to be cautious and move slowly and carefully and respect the insects that you're working with. And they are magnificent creatures. They truly are. They are beautiful. They are intricate. They are mysterious. Hundreds of books have been written about bees over the centuries, and we still don't know everything. There's so much that we have yet to discover. They have an extraordinary way of communicating with each other. They have a very mysterious and fascinating uh, collective intelligence, the way they reach their decisions about when they're going to swarm, create a new queen, all that sort of thing. And uh, they have also a marvelous way of helping us all. They give back to nature, unlike us taking away from nature. They pollinate our crops so they help us uh, grow our own food. And of course, they collect the nectar from flowers and make liquid gold out of it and honey. So they are truly, truly magnificent creatures. And I find beekeeping, for me, 
is an antidote to the pressures of everyday life. I work in a particularly stressful environment sometimes in a TV studio for three hours in the morning, you get all kinds of information coming in and sometimes you finish and your head is ready to explode. And then you go away to a beehive and when you open it up and you smoke the bees and they've all come down, you open it up and they just sit there and they're nice and calm and they ask you all sorts of questions. You have to determine First of all, in my case, are they still alive? Which, of course, they are on this particular occasion, this imaginary occasion, they are still there. Uh, are there enough of them? Do they have enough food? Is the queen there? Is she laying? Are they bringing pollen in? All that sort of thing. Are there any disease issues you've got to deal with? What is their state of health? Uh, and do you have to put any more supers on, any more extra boxes to make way, hopefully, make room for the, the honey that they're going to produce? Are they about to swarm? All sorts of questions. And in my particular case, usually, how on earth am I going to solve the mess that I left them in last time? Because invariably, I open it up and I think, why is that bit there? And why are these bees here? And where is the queen, etc.? Because I've done something to solve the problem the last occasion, I've forgotten what it was. Now, beekeeping, you're supposed to be meticulous. You're supposed to be very careful. You're supposed to write notes and number your bees. Some people even actually put numbers on the backs of their queen bees, which is an amazing thing to do. How do they do it to get the queen to sit still long enough to write number 19 on it? I don't know, but they do it. Anyway, all that sort of thing. I don't do that. Uh, I leave the bees to themselves, which means invariably that there, there is a mess. I have a thing called a Billy T special now. I've given it a name because I've done it so often, I've taken it on as my own invention. And that is when sometimes I have to put an empty box on top of the beehive. You beekeepers get rid of this. It's a super, okay? Put an empty super on there. If there's been a swarm or I had to create some extra room and I haven't got the frames, I put it on there. And then I go away, forget about it. And when I come back, the bees give bees enough room, they'll fill it up with wax and then honey and pollen and the queen will fill it up with eggs. And I come back and it's full of bees. But the trouble is, and the queen's in there, I can't get in there to inspect them. I can't take any honey off because it's full of bees and I can't get them out. And so it's a bit of a mess. The funny thing is, though, the bees are never happier than when they're in that particular situation. Possibly because they know that I can't get in there to sort them out. But also because it's a more natural way for them to be. You can pick up that box. You can put it on it, you lift it above your head if it's not too heavy, you can put it on its side, you can turn it upside down, they will not move because it is the perfect position for them to be in. Which is a lesson for me and possibly a lesson that we can all learn, which is the less you mess your bees about, the better they will be. Now, I was talking about stings though and there's one sting I love to tell people about because I know what, if I do this, it'll never happen to you if you start keeping bees. And I was given a colony once of some particularly bad-tempered ones. I get, the guy who gave it to me was one of my first teachers, taught me my first lesson in beekeeping. He said, these are nice bees. They were killers. They were really, really vicious. And they had this habit <coughs> of flying up out of the hive and then landing on my veil. That's fine. I could carry on doing it, carry on working. And one day I was going through the hive, and it was quite warm, and I noticed I was sweating a bit, and you do because it's very tightly bound material. And then I noticed that I had a, a bead of sweat on my face, and I... For some reason, the bead of sweat was going up and not down. I thought, that's kind of weird. I'm sweating upwards. And then I realized it wasn't a drop of sweat. It was, in fact, a bee that got inside the veil. Now, when you put your veil on, there's a zip that goes up this way, and then the two zips come across the side on the veil. And there's a little hole where the two zips meet, and there's a Velcro fastener underneath. And naturally, of course, being me, I hadn't fastened it. And one bee got in there. So normally, this wouldn't matter, because you could just take the veil off, and the bee would fly away. But as I had 50 or so rather bad-tempered bees on my veil, I couldn't do that. So I thought, I know what I'll do. 
I'll just wander under the trees, the bees will go away, it'll get dark in a few hours, they'll all go home, and eventually I'll be able to do it. Which was fine, except that the bee then started walking round the back of my head, looking for what bees love, warm, dark places. And I don't know if you know this, but on your head there are only four warm, dark places to go to. Your left nostril, your right nostril, and your left and your right ear. And this one went looking for my left ear. And as it came around, I thought, if that bee goes in there, it's going to get stuck. And it won't be able to turn around, and it'll get upset. And what it, I don't know, it might sting me inside the ear canal, may or may not, I don't know. And what happens, I thought, if you get stung inside your ear canal, it doesn't bear thinking about it, does it? So I thought, I'm going to have to kill it. So got out the finger, went three, two, one, like that. And I did kill it, not before it stung me. So now it's stung me here on the cartilage of my ear, which is a particularly painful place to get stung. And I can't dig the sting out, which, you know, they leave the barber and can't sting it out because I've still got 50 angry bees on my veil. So it was all pretty ugly. And by the time uh, uh, I got into the car and did it, it was not it was only the situation ugly, but I also became very ugly as, my, as myself. I looked like a cross between Charles Lawton in The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Shrek. And particularly this side. So this all just swelled up. And uh, I went to see the doctor and they gave me all sorts of drugs. And that was okay until the next day when I had to go to work. And uh, it had all come down a bit. But then I put a tie on and I had massive wattles coming down this way. So that was a, a lesson. Uh, in, and I think maybe if I've told you this story and you take up beekeeping, just remember, you know, fill up that uh, particular hole. Now, beekeeping, if you want to get started... People say, you know, it does cost a little bit of money, but uh, not too much. You can usually borrow equipment from a beekeeping association in your, your first season. You will have to buy your own suit and veil and that sort of thing. And if you want, you can spend much more on it, and I should know, because I have. Uh, I've, uh, in fact, I got so much equipment at one point that it was beginning to fill up the house. So then I had spent several hundred more pounds building a shed at the bottom of the garden uh, to put it in there and now I've got so much I've had so much stuff in there I can't actually get into the shed so some of it's actually had to come back into the house we have a sort of toing throwing system uh, and uh, my favourite piece of equipment is actually um, the extractor which is a big um, tank it's about the size of an oil tank and it's silver it's got a crank handle on the top it's what you use for, for processing the honey and it, I ran out of space in the shed so it came into the house about five years ago and uh, much to my wife's chagrin, it's still there in the corner of the room. And it's been there through several different amazing events, my 50th birthday, big wedding anniversaries, family Christmas, New Year, etc. And I, she says it's getting in the way, which is true. And I say, well, it's an objet d'art. It's a talking point. And when people come around to that, they say, what the hell is that? And then we have a nice conversation about it. And uh, fortunately, though, uh, I've managed to add to that collection because I did have some honey in the living room for several months waiting to be processed, and I got distracted by the football season, that sort of thing. And then uh, Ceci, who's here, my wife, said, look, you know, the BBC is actually coming around to film now in our house. They're going to do come dine with me on breakfast. So she said, it's got to go. So the honey had to go down in the shed. And then when the honey came back out of the shed, it had crystallized. And when it crystallized and goes solid, you can't process it in a honey extractor because it's all solid. So then I had to buy uh, what's called a honey wax melter and honey extractor. And uh, that's now in the living room uh, next to the honey. And if I sell 250 jars of honey at five pounds a jar, I'll have paid for it. 
All I've got to do is produce 250 pounds of honey, uh, which will take some doing. But the great thing is, you can buy equipment secondhand. And there's a marvellous event down in um, West Sussex. Beekeepers hold it in Pulborough every spring. And they hold it, you can buy secondhand gear. And you get bits of hive and, and boxes and supers and brood boxes and, and veils and all sorts of things. And once I bought a, a little honey wax melt. It was fantastic. I thought this was a really good deal. I got it for 40 quid. It turned out to be a hospital steriliser that someone had recycled. But my favourite story, I, I, I just love it so much. You get down there, you want to buy things. People pay more for secondhand items there than they are selling for new sometimes. But there's... Well, I've got this collection of books which I really love and, uh, about beekeeping. And there was one book I saw down there in this collection, uh, which was um, E.B. Wedmore's A Manual of Beekeeping. It's a very special book. I don't know. Any of the beekeepers you got it? Are you familiar with it? Huh? Yeah, you know, it's a good book, isn't it? Because it's all laid out in paragraphs. It's a fantastic book. Been around for yonks. Anyway, I saw this book and thought, I must have this book. I must have this book. This is a very special book. And so I bid and I bid and, I, and somebody else was bidding against me really annoyingly. And then at one point I found the, uh, the auctioneer pointing at me. And I thought, oh, I've got a bid again. So I said, eight pounds. And he said, no, the bid is already with you. You have the top bid. I bid against myself. Eventually, though, I won it. I got this book and I was terribly happy. And I took it back. And I put it on the shelf where everything's laid out alphabetically. And I put it next to a book called a Manual of Beekeeping by E.B. Wedmore. <laughs> and I'd bought a book at auction that I already owned. Never mind. There you go. Some good things, though, have come out of my beekeeping career. Uh, and it's taken me to some amazing places, not the least of which is uh, the London School of uh, Economics. But I was uh, very fortunate uh, to uh, be approached by a charity called uh, Bees for Development. It's the Bees for Development Trust, which uh, sustains beekeeping organizations in other parts of the world, and they do, do fantastic work. And I had an idea. I used to run marathons. I had an idea once that I, should, I got injured, and I'd need an excuse to run a, a, a slow time in the London Marathon. So I thought, I know what, I'll dress up as a beekeeper. Seemed like a really good idea at the time. Uh, but it had its complications, not the least of which was when I was practicing out in the countryside, People just thought, there's a nutter running. <laughs> anyway, I started off at the front of uh, the London Marathon, uh, along, you know, 40,000 runners behind me, and I'm with sort of the other big celebrities like Gordon Ramsay and the Cheeky Girls. It was a bit of a thin year that year for celebrities. Anyway, running along and uh, doing quite well, and then my hands got, um, you know, I've got the veil on and the gloves and everything, and my hands got a little bit warm, so I took my gloves off, and I'm running along still, and everything's going okay. And then I dropped one of my gloves. Well, instinctively, what do you do when you drop a glove? You stop and you pick it up. And as I did so, I heard screams, because there behind me were 10,000 runners all about to collapse on top of me. So that went on. And then uh, a couple of miles later, I felt really warm. And I don't know, any, any marathon runners here? Yeah. You know, you run for a bit, you need to expectorate, don't you? You have to spit. So I thought, oh, God. And then I remembered I still had the veil on. So, uh, but I got to the end eventually, and we raised some money. So that was a good thing that came out of the beekeeping. And then uh, a couple of years later, I got invited to take part in Celebrity Mastermind. Now, and they ring you up, and what they do is say, will you do Celebrity Mastermind? You say, yeah, yeah, of course, like, instantly. Any, anything I can get myself on television for, I'll say yes to, you know. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, what's your specialist subject? Now, I should have said, the, the secret of that is to pick a subject that actually you're not associated with. So I should have said, uh, Mongolian yak milking techniques or, you know, crochet for widows of the 14th century. Instead, I said, well, beekeeping's my thing, which is an idiotic thing to do. Because it, I knew, I realized that 
as soon as I did that, um, if I didn't do well in the competition, then people would point at me at beekeeping conventions after I said, there's that fool Turnbull who knows nothing about beekeeping. Instead now, they say, there's that fool Turnbull who wrote this book. It shows he knows nothing about beekeeping. And uh, I managed to ruin a summer uh, taking part in that. But I, I was, it was a very interesting experience because when you go and sit in that black chair, it is utterly terrifying. But all I could think was when I was walking along that gang, I thought, God, this is really cheap plywood they've made the set out of. <laughs> anyway, I did okay. We managed not to disgrace ourselves, and that was all right. And the other really good thing that's come out of it is actually the bees have raised tons of money for charity because they occasionally I do get a, the odd jar of honey from the bees. And uh, I go and I get invited to, to host charity balls and that sort of thing. And they say, got anything you can auction? I say, yeah, I've got, got a jar of honey. And people have been mad enough to spend thousands of pounds, literally, on jars of honey. So I've always been grateful to the bees for doing that. So those are just a, a few of the good things. But people say to me, well, look, you can't be that bad a beekeeper. You've still got hives of bees that are alive after 10 years. And I say, yeah, but you don't know half the things I've done. And one of the worst things you can do <coughs> is really is to, I have to hesitate here, when you kill a queen. The queen is the most important member of the colony because she's the mother of the colony. She lays two, two and a half thousand eggs a day. If you've got no queen, you've got no bees. Eventually they all die out. So she's very, very precious. And, uh, and sometimes things do go wrong. I'm not the only one who's killed a queen, am I? Oh my God, I am the only one who's killed a queen. <coughs> You're just not fessing up to you. Anyway, okay, I'm not uh, and, uh, and I had a, 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 a mentor called Robin who lived in my village, an elderly gentleman who was wonderful, let me look after his bees with him and we'd go and inspect the bees every week. And when you inspect the bees, you have to um, pull the frames out one by one and you look to see if there's enough bees and enough food and you look to see if you can find the queen and then you put the frame back in and there are usually 10 or 11 frames in each box. You put it, pick it up, turn it around, turn it over, put it back. So it's a fairly gentle, straightforward process. Until the day that I went with Robin to help him look at his bees. And <clears throat> not all, once again, went terribly to plan. You see, the one bee you do have to keep an eye out for is the queen. As mother of the entire colony, she's rather important. Beekeepers pride themselves on their queens. They're precious living jewels. Not only do they determine the nature and temperament of their offspring, but they have an aristocratic beauty. If they were human, they'd be tall, with fine bones, long necks, exquisite figures, and excellent deportment. They are not easily replaced. In other words, you look after them. Although the queen stands out from the rest of the crowd through her size and shape, beekeepers help her to do this by marking her on the thorax. That's a round, knobbly bit on her back, above where her waistline should be. Good beekeepers use a different color of marker every year so that they can see instantly how old the queen is and whether she'll need to be replaced soon. As I, as I mentioned, some beekeepers, the really professional ones, put little numbers on, on their backs. Most of the rest of us use Tipex, the white correcting fluid beloved of typists. But Robin chose something rather more exotic, nail varnish in an alluring shade of mauve, so she was hard to miss. Generally, you don't have to worry too much about the queen once you've spotted her during the inspection because she's quite shy. She'll beetle off down into the dark if she feels threatened, which is the best place for her when you're putting that last frame back in the hive because you, you wouldn't want her running around on the tops of the frames and getting in the way, would you? Trouble is, later on in the summer, things do get a bit sticky. To get ready for autumn, the bees start sealing things up with propolis. It's a resin that they collect from trees. It's their version of a draft excluder, 
Very useful for the bees, but a bit of a pain for the keeper because things don't glide together as easily as they did. Sometimes you have to give them a bit of a nudge or a shunt. The thing is, I just didn't see her. I mean, I wasn't expecting to see her there anyway. Queens don't run around on the tops of the frames, do they? And as I gave that last frame an extra shove to put it in place, there, there was a flash of mauve under the frame. Robin was there with me, but looking at something else. I paused, hoping that I hadn't seen what I thought I'd seen. But when I lifted the frame, I saw her, squashed and rather dead. I still feel tremulous about it now. There I was, with the man who'd taken me under his wing, teaching me everything he knew, sharing his bees and his expertise and his honey, and how had I repaid him? By killing one of his most precious belongings. I know, it's really bad, isn't it? I stood and sweated and ran the following conversation with myself, in my head, of course. Good me. Oh, you idiots, you've gone and killed the queen. Bad me. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. Look at it. It's dead. You and your big fat fingers went and squashed it. Maybe she's not dead. Maybe she's just lying down for a moment. In two halves? <laughs> You're going to have to tell Robin. He hasn't noticed. We could just put the roof on and he'll never know. Good me gives bad me a stern look. Okay, okay, I'll tell him. Back in the real world, Robin and I, um, I think I may have squashed the queen. Where? Here. I lifted the offending frame to reveal Her Majesty, deceased. Even now, I can still remember the sound that Robin made. And, oh, there was half sigh and half groan. It was the perfect expression for the moment. Surprise, regret, and displeasure all rolled into one. He was far too polite and considerate to be angry with me, and he knew it had been an accident. But in turn, I knew how he felt, and it wasn't very good. In time, we got the queen replaced, and Robin still let me help him with the bees, and I took extra care to make sure that when I put that last frame back, the queen was not in the way. I wonder if it's partly redemptive to recall that what I have done unto others, I have also done to myself. But if you want to know how that works out, you've got to buy the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. To any questions people have got, we have got robin microphones, um, two stewards in the building as well. If you, yeah, stewards are also there to make sure nobody r rushes the stage, okay? So you're all on warning. Oh, come on, yes. Hi, Bill. Um, could you tell me what it means to split the hive to increase productivity? Because that's something I've read about recently. To split the hives to increase productivity, okay. What happens is you, uh, you have your hive, and it's also to help um, uh, stop the, the bees swarming. So you take, and other beekeepers will correct me here because I've never done this successfully, but you take um, some of the frames out that have got, bee, uh, that have got obviously bees, but also um, uh, eggs that have just been laid by the queen. They have to be fresh eggs, and they're just tiny little, almost like um, grains of rice, smaller than that. And freshly laid eggs you put in a separate hive with some stores and some other bees and you just split them up. So you're splitting the colony into two. So the first colony carries on with the old queen and they're fine. And the second colony uh, then develops several of these eggs into queen cells. And they give them extra royal jelly and they stand out from the others because you, you get a cell that's about that big size of your finger. Whereas most cells are very small. And they develop queen cells and eventually they hatch out uh, after how many days? 
16? 21. What? 17? 16? 16 or 17. Around then. Who's counting? Around then. And, uh, and then you may get several at the same time. I counted 28 queen cells once in a hive. And the first one out, they make a, a piping noise when they're coming out, uh, when they're sort of eating their way through the edge of the queen cell. First one out goes round and kills all the other ones. So there's only one surviving queen. So anyway, you get two colonies out of one in that respect. And that means that the older colony won't, won't swarm and you can hold on to them. Is that all right? Okay. Did, was, that, was that right? <laughs> yeah, more or less? Okay. You do, there's a funny thing actually where you do, um, you're supposed to shift the box that you put them in from, to one side of the hive and then after, after a few days you put it to the other side of the hive, don't you? As an artificial swarm, which is something entirely different <laughs> to splitting the colony. I, I just split them. I just, if I see them, about, if I see queen cells, I just take them away and put some bees in there and they just get on with it. And uh, it's all right. Yes? Very good question. I'm never entirely sure. And the answer usually depends whether my wife's in the same room at the time. <laughs> but I do have, I have, I think I was counting today, I think I've got 10, of which only seven are viable. I've got one swarm at the bottom of the garden, which flew in. I've got one in the neighbor's garden. I've got five in an apiary on a farm, but two of them don't have queens. I've got two more on another estate. Only one's got a queen. And I've got um, a top bar hive, which is wild, and I never go near them. They swarm every year. I've never had any honey, but they survive from year to year, and I just leave them to them. I think it's ten, roughly. But I don't necessarily get any honey out of them. That's the other thing. Question at the back. Yeah. One of the great sights that I remember from cycling through Mexico many years ago was a hillside absolutely covered in hives mm. and all painted brilliant colours. Mm. What a pity we don't seem to do that in this country. Do you paint any of yours? Uh, no, I did. Uh, <clears throat> I tried an experiment once um, to uh, to keep the I think it was to keep the woodpeckers off because the woodpeckers are very are really annoying. They're lovely birds. But terrible for beekeepers because they get a taste for bees and they'll drill a hole in and they'll just suck out whatever they can get you know eggs bees honey they don't care and because they create such a draft and drop in temperature right in the middle of winter the bees die and I had a colony die like that and most people put uh, chicken wire around them I, tr I was told once that if you, if you put painted chicken fat on the side of your your, your hives uh, that worked as well and it did but then Probably had foxes licking inside the hive as well. <laughs> in Slovenia, they are there's a very big beekeeping country there, and they paint their hives all wonderful colours. And in Italy, I've seen. I don't know why we don't bother here. We're just we're too mean, you know. We're very thrifty, really, as beekeepers. Just, why bother to do that? So yeah, it's a it's a pity. And they probably got smaller hives too, I should think. Yes, sir. Oh, do you want to wait for the microphone? <clears throat> which um, particular bees are gentle, nice, sweet bees for the beginner. And um, what about diseases in your beehives? I'm yeah. a, an urban uh, novice, and okay. I'm interested in knowing what a really... Uh, I'm told a New Zealand bee is particularly docile. Is this right? I had a New Zealand bee once. She was docile, and then she died, so I gave up on her after that. Um, I'm not a big believer in importing bees at all, actually. I'm a big believer in having your local bee. So what is your local bee? It's difficult. But, but basically, the definition for local bee for me is, is you get a bee, a queen, who, a, a colony that survives for three winters, right? If that queen survives for three winters, she is clearly suited to the local circumstances and local climate. That's your local bee. Breed from her. 
because then you'll get bees which, uh, which are used to their environment. You can get bees, you know, you get them in the envelopes from, from New Zealand and Cyprus, you get from Argentina, from Hawaii and all over. But it's kind of like asking a farmer in southern Italy to go and work on a sheep farm in the Cairngorms. You know, just, it doesn't work for me. And furthermore, I think it, it lowers the quality of the strain. How do you keep bees well-tempered? That's really easy. Just leave them alone. I think. I mean, I think one of the reasons we do, we do get bad-tempered bees is a, possibly too much crossbreeding, and two, um, a and two, do you get that? And b, um, uh, it, it, we mess them about too much. You know, every week or so, every eight days, we go in. You lift a lift the hive apart. You start delving in. You're ripping. They're trying to build a nest, right? They in the middle of the beehive. What they're trying to do is create a little globe, like that, a sphere. Of, of, of eggs for the, for the queen to work on. And we rip it apart every single week. No wonder they get angry. I'm amazed they don't get angrier, to be honest. So you have to go and inspect them every once in a while, but there are ways and ways of doing it. And I find the longer I leave my bees, because they're on a farm, to be honest, if they swarm, it doesn't really matter. The longer you the, just stop messing your bees around. Now, there is an argument, actually, which I, I didn't get to in the book, for... Uh, DIY beehives and the worry hive as well where instead of adding boxes on the top you add boxes on the bottom and you have you just let them build as much brace comb, wild comb making it their own way not on frames as they like and just take a little bit off the top but it means you end up with a beehive that's this high and every time you want to put a new box on you've got to put it on the bottom so how do you do that but you do that system and you end up with a much more natural way of keeping bees the other thing is, what happens is, you know, you'll have one or two hives, you'll lose a queen, you go, oh my God, I'm going to lose my honey, honey crop if I don't get a bee now, queen bee now, so then you import one. But for the long term, I don't think it's, it's particularly good. But I wish you luck with you. What about diseases? Are diseases? I'm, uh, touch wood, relatively disease-free. I, uh, I haven't, I'm, I'm bound to have some varroa, but I have mesh floors, and um, I'm all right. Now, having said that, I'll go home and discover they've all got Nassima, but there you go. But yeah, I, was amazed. I got inspected a couple of years ago. I was terrified because, you know, he's come looking for AFB, American Fowlbrood, and I was like, it's, I'm, he's going to just see the way I keep my bees. It's going to be awful. And he said, he said, not only are bees clean, but they're very good-tempered. And it's because I'll leave them alone. Another question? Uh, just the microphone set. As a beekeeper, new bee, I'm actually on a course next week to, to start learning. What's the one piece of advice you'd give me? Apart from you will get stung. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's really good when the pain wears off. It's, uh, it's funny, it's, it, when you get stung, have you ever been stung by a bee? Yeah. yeah. Hurts like hell, doesn't it? Really. <laughs> For about 10 seconds. And after that, when it wears off, you think, oh, this is really nice. It's all right. Uh, I'd st if, the thing is, the, the world is divided into two sorts of people. People who can keep bees and people who can't. And people who keep bees, uh, by and large, they don't mind getting stung. In fact, I was at a conference last year, a year before, where they asked everybody a question. They said, yeah, if, you, if bees didn't sting, would you want your bees not to sting at all? And two people said, we'd like your bees not to sting. They were beginners. Everybody else said, no, no, no we want to carry on stinging. We don't mind, because we understand it's part of the process. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, oh, well, yeah, stick the Velcro together. Really important. Oh, and use, oh, since you've started me now, as <coughs> soon as you can, use thinner rubber gloves. If you use leather, the big leather gloves, they, 
um, they, A, it's like eating breakfast with your boxing gloves on, right? Because it's all very clumsy. And two, they take on a smell, and they smell, start smelling stings and dead bees and that sort of thing. That if you, I get vet's gloves, you know, they're tiny little, uh, very thin, and you can feel the bees on your fingers. And they come and they walk on your hands and look at them, you have a little chat with them, it's fantastic, you know. And you know that they're there, it, does, it makes you much more gentle. Right, I better move on because I'm going to think of something else in a minute, yeah. Oh yeah, there's a drug you should have in your bag as well. What's it called, Ceci? Pyroton. If you swell up when you get stung, start taking Pyroton. I'm finished now with tips. Yeah. I've um, just done my first beekeeping course. And yeah. I was wondering how long you were learning for before you got the first bee. And you uh, yeah, well, I was terrified, absolutely. Especially in some reason, I think in your first season, the bees know, oh, here's the new bee. And they, let's fly all over him, you know. And you do find, I, I, um, when I did Strictly years ago, my, I took my partner, Karen Hardy, to see the bees. And she had hundreds of bees on her back because they could tell that she'd never been there before. Um, what was the, the question? <laughs> How long before I was allowed to go? I had to attend three lessons and then um, uh, and, and pass this test on and show them I could knock together a frame. Then I went to the apiary and Christopher showed me how it all worked. And then after they gave me, for my first season, they gave me a colony of bees. And, um, and I... It was kind of like flying solo. The first time you go on your own, really on your own, you go, oh, well, what happens if they all attack me and all that sort of thing? They don't. But you, you, know, you do it with someone else for a while, and then when you feel comfortable, you do it. And it's actually, it is, you feel nervous the first time, but when you do it several times and you haven't died, then it's quite nice after that. And I you know, go on my own all, all the time now. But, uh, yeah, I wish you all the best with it. Yes, sir. Oh, just would you mind waiting for the Sorry, microphone? one person. Gentleman here. There's a gentleman here in front of me. Yeah, I was just wondering when you when you see honey. Yeah. How do you know the bees actually? How do you know that the honey when you've got bees on the heather? How do you know that they've been on the heather and not on something else? Well, I don't know because I've never had bees on the heather. But I would imagine it's because heather is you put them in an area where it's largely only heather. On the heather moors, there aren't many other flowers, and you can take a fairly good guess that it is, if not 100% heather that they're foraging on, then it's 90 or 80%, I would imagine. But you know, on the, what else is there for them to go on if you put them up on the moors there, on the heather? Ah, he's thinking now, is he? <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. And that relates to all sorts of different things, really, doesn't it? I, I, I've never tried to make heather honey, so. Isn't the cover of the, of the honey of what it's made of? Well, yes and no. You can't really be that specific about it. With pollen, you can be, because the pollen from each plant is a, is a specific colour, and you can get a chart and check what it's from. But the colour, no, honey early in the season is light. Uh, for instance, they're on the rape crops at the moment. It's very light and very bland. It's almost, you know, later in the season it gets darker. But you, I don't, you couldn't tell that if you're looking at, you know, uh, say, chestnut honey and ivy honey, it would be more or less the same colour. They wouldn't taste the same, but they'd, they'd both be very dark. So, yeah, no. It does. Yes, you can. <laughs> and thank you for that. Yeah. Of course, the clover comes out later. 
doesn't it, too? And that's the point, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, could you wait for the microphone? Thank you. Um, a lot of organizations don't want to start keeping bees as a community project because they're worried about the health and safety aspects yeah. of it. What are your views on that? Do you think we should ignore it and go ahead anyway? Or Depends where you're going to put the bees, really. <clears throat> um, you want to, to have them where, uh, you know, you don't want them flying into a, it, onto people's washing lines, you know, you don't want them flying around. The main thing is, what's going to happen if they swarm? Now, swarms are actually really exciting, and they're quite benign, you know, it's quite difficult to get stung by a swarm. I'm still trying to dare myself to walk into the middle of a swarm without any protective equipment on, just to see if I can do it. Except one of them probably bounce into you, but they, you know, they, they won't hurt you by and large. But you've got to look out for that sort of thing. And also you've got to think about what your public liability is. And if somebody gets, knows there's a hive nearby and they get stung and say, your bees stung me and, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of awkward. I mean, I've put my hives, I've got a, a, a hive that's empty now, but I did have a hive on the garage roof. And, um, and to get past it, to get into the house, you had to be within, say it was up there, and you had to walk past it. And postman and everybody went past and it was fine. So that was okay. Uh, and last year, just for fun, I put a, a hive of bees on my neighbor's patio, just outside his kitchen window as well, only for a couple of weeks. But it was exciting for him, and, um, <laughs> and I needed somewhere for them to go very quickly. That's happens sometimes in beekeeping. You suddenly got, well, you got like a swarm of bees, and I've got nowhere to put them, so let's put them here. You know. So you need to be mindful, you know, and uh, it depends. Have you got any particular place you're thinking of putting them? No, just from experience, Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you join, the, if you join, the, if you join your bee, local beekeeping association, you can get insurance from them. Uh, so that that'll help you. And allotments. A lot of people want to have them in allotments, but you got it's a question which way they're going to fly. You got to make sure they're flying away from people and that sort of thing. If you think about it, it you can get it to work. Uh, anyway, gentlemen at the back there. Well, firstly, thank you for a very entertaining talk. Um, I was wondering, are any famous beekeepers that you've interviewed on perhaps on BBC Breakfast and find out the you know, president of, of somewhere or other is also into bees, any sort of famous beekeepers? Famous beekeepers. Celebrities? No. Um, <laughs> uh, no, there are one or two. Um, um, Martha Carney, who presents uh, the World at One, she's uh, a beekeeper. She keeps two hives. She has terrible trouble keeping them alive through the winter. But we, she and I compare notes. Uh, Jim Nocte started a couple of years ago very proudly, saying he'd been given a bee house, which is one of these rather controversial plastic jobs you get given. It's sort of like the egg glue of the beekeeping world. Any of you, anybody got a, a bee house, one of these plastic ones? I think they're awful <laughs> because you can't sterilize them, you know, and if you get foul brood or something, a really sort of noxious disease, you can't, there's nothing you can do, you know, except burn the plastic, which is not good for the environment at all. So I'm not sure if he does it anymore. Uh, and the only other person I think of was, um, Tam Diel, the MP, he used to keep bees. Mr. Vote in the Commons once because he had a swarm, got into terrible trouble with the whips. Did you have a question? Yeah. <coughs> um, so the LSE has uh, beehives in one of the halls of residence, yeah. and we extracted a small amount of honey this year. Uh, in terms of organisations across London, because the mayor's promoting to be more beekeeping, what would you say, you know, if everybody here went away um, 
tonight and told their friends and family about this, what would you say, you know, is it to become a beekeeper or are there other things, planting, well, uh, Yeah, <coughs> planting I think is do? the most important thing. I mean, it, beekeeping isn't for everybody. You know, it takes, uh, it takes a certain amount of discipline, it takes uh, dedication, it takes application, you've got to be able to do it at, at certain times. You have to be able to withstand a certain amount of discomfort and that sort of thing. And some people just can't, you know, their system doesn't deal with it. My brother took up beekeeping and he had to stop because his fingers swelled up too much when he got, got stung. So there's just sort of some physical attributes that you, you, that you need in order to do it. And, uh, but uh, what everybody can do is plant the right kind of flowers. Off the top of my head, of course, I can't remember what those flowers are, but um, if you uh, look up the bbka.org or British Beekeepers Association website, it has a list of what you can plant which will help them. Lavender uh, is great, for instance. Uh, Vipers bugloss, if you ever see it, uh, is, is very good for them as well, that sort of thing. So lots of different flowers. Anybody else? Yes, gentlemen there. Um, I was just wondering what happens to a beehive in the winter? Does it just shut down completely or...? Yeah, they don't hibernate. <coughs> they, what they do is they form a cluster. They stop flying after a while. I'm trying to remember what, they, what it is. And they maintain a constant temperature in the hive, in this cluster of... Is it 30, 30 degrees centigrade? Or 38? Or 33? The figure's in the book, anyway. And um, <coughs> uh, they, like uh, emperor penguins, they form around the, the queen and they take in turns to go on the outside. Now in the summer, you get a peak population of 50, maybe 60,000 bees, and that goes right down to about 10,000. And some of the bees live for six weeks. The ones that stay over through winter live for four months. And so they keep the queen going. Then in about February, she'll, they'll, they'll come out and start flying again, just sort of having a go from 11 degrees centigrade. But up to that point, they're not asleep. And if you open up the hive in the winter, which you can do, as long as you don't pull out the frames, you need to get in and feed them. I feed them with um, Baker's fondant, which is sort of icing stuff. And you put a lump of that on there, something that's not liquid, so, so it doesn't freeze. But if you take the lid off, some of them will sort of come up and say, ooh, what's going on here, in a sort of slightly dozy way. So they are awake, but they're just not doing very much. Waiting for the woodpecker to attack. <laughs> Gentlemen here. Do you have any experience of um, uh, German bee houses? German bee houses? No, no. I've been tempted, but that's. Uh, um, you mean where you have all the bees inside the shed, and they're flying out? No, it's a really good idea, <clears throat> in some respects, because it means one of the big problems for beekeepers is this year apart is you can only go and inspect them when the sun's shining. When it's raining, you can't get in there. And what's happening then is, while it's raining. The bees are making more and more, uh, the queen's laying more and more eggs and there's less and less space and before you know it they are preparing to swarm. This is a big deal for beekeepers at, at this time of year. You want to try and stop your bees from swarming, it's their natural way of reproducing. So if it's raining, they're doing all that and you can't get in there to see what's happening. Now the bee house is literally, is, is a shed basically, or where you've got your, your hives all lined up but they're indoors and they've got little holes in the wall and they can fly in and out and it means whatever the weather is you can go and inspect them and get into them which is a good idea not many have got that much space yeah yeah it's a very simple process. Very simple. 
Yeah. If I could get into my shed, I might start doing that. Another shed, yeah. Another shed done. Any more questions? No? We're done. Listen, thank you very much. Before we go, somebody in here tweeted earlier that it was their wedding anniversary and this is the way they were coming to celebrate. Who is that? And you're here with your husband? Ah, well... Thank you very much indeed. It's really very nice. How, uh, how many years have you been married? Can't remember. Six, Six years. Uh, that's, good. that's good. I just, whenever I hear about wedding anniversary stories, <clears throat> I just love the story that uh, somebody told me about his dad who had his 45th wedding anniversary recently. And so they got the champagne out, the whole family together, and he said, here's to 45 years of happy marriage. And Stanley said, starting from now. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.